Radio Boise, in collaboration with The Modern Hotel, presents Campfire Stories, readings by notable local authors recorded live from the patio at The Modern Hotel in downtown Boise. Yes, you can yip like a hyena if you'd like. That's appropriate. Whoever that was. Dana Olin, maybe? I don't know. Is that you? Okay. <laughs> All right, well, welcome, for sure. This is a fantastic... We, I can't imagine better weather for October than this. Um, warm, scenic, it's dark. The campfires fit in a little bit more than in July when it was like 100 or 104. But, uh, yeah, so welcome, and I want to thank everybody for showing up, and I want to thank uh, Samantha Silva, Stacy Erickson, Tish Thornton, Thornton, make sure I say that completely, for being the featured readers tonight. Um, we are going to start with Sam, but first I'd like to say a few thank yous, of course, to the Modern Hotel. I want to say, thank uh, Elizabeth, who's sitting over there, the owner. Thanks for hosting, and for Polly, Michael, Remy, Ashley, all the fine bartenders. So, thanks so much. And we have... Gonna bring this up a little bit. Um, Rediscovered Books over here, where there are some fine books available. And thanks for being a sponsor and for showing up every week. This is our June, July, August, September. This is our fifth. We have one more coming up too. But Rediscovered has um, some fine books for events they're doing soon. One, let's see, uh, The Prince of Silence, October 23rd, Liza Long. She'll be at the store, I believe, is that true? At the store. And then we have the, the Booze and Books, which is down at the Mode Lounge on the 25th. Oh, is it the bookstore? Oh, a bartender from the Mode will be there serving booze. So that'll be great. And then we also have Breaking Chains on the 17th of October at the store. Correct? All right. So those three events are coming up. You can go check out the books that are by those authors. Um, and then we have David Abrams' book, uh, Fobbit. He'll be here next month, by the way, with Alan Heathcock. And uh, Fobbit's available. Volt, Alan's book, is not over there on the table. I mean, they sold out, so. But that's available widely out there. You can find Volt. And so Alan and David will be here a month from, approximately a month from today, the second Monday of November when it should be colder, I imagine, and uh, the blankets that the uh, Modern has available, if you guys do get a little cold tonight, you can go get them at the front desk. We have blankets, we have heaters, we have campfires, so in November, when it might be snowing, <laughs> that could be kind of a fun, fun way to hear a story. So I will also want to say thanks to like Wendy Fox over here, Radio Boise, they're providing this sound equipment, they're recording all the readers. They are actually putting the recorded material up on their website. They're planning to put together a show. Uh, it's still in the planning stages for the fall, winter, springtime, but putting a show up on, on uh, Boise Radio that has kind of edited down versions of these writers and what they've done all summertime here into the fall. So look for that soon. Well, we have Story Fort to talk about as well. Story Fort's part of... It's kind of a sub-fort of Tree Fort. Some of you guys were there last year. We did it, and I think we're going to do it again. The main events will be at the Sesqua shop, but the Modern will be involved in a capacity for sort of a pre-Story Fort reading or two starting in March. So after November, we'll be doing this one more reading with Alan and David, and then we'll have um, the winter off, 
and then we'll do a March event. So that'll be the introduction to Story for here at the Modern. And then, of course, all the readers this summertime in, have been great. We had Jay Rubin Appleman, we had Matthew R.K. Haynes, we had Laura Rogar, we had Carrie Webster, we had John Rember, we had Martin Crowley Smith, we had Nicole Cullen, and then now we have these fine ladies tonight. So I would say, yes. Um, Samantha Silva is going to be our first reader. Um, she's a screenwriter, she's a fiction writer, she is a force of nature, I understand. So she actually is going to be introduced by Stacy, who's known her for quite some time and has some things to say about her writing. So Stacy, come on up. She'll be our third reader for the night, but she wants to, and I've asked her to actually introduce uh, Sam. So come on up and enjoy the festivities. Thanks for showing up. Oh, one more thing, I guess, in the, the walk forward. We have a Bjork film to introduce, right? At the Flicks, coming up, Bjork Biophilia, which sounds like something Bjork would say. But it's, it's like visual, oral, it's an extravaganza. The Flicks is putting it on, oh, November 6th, 7 p.m. So go see it. And is she married to that Matthew Barney guy still? who did all that crazy film stuff and who's from Boise High and all that kind of stuff. I think they're still together. Capital High, all right. Well, never. I didn't live here back then, but she still has an affiliation with Boise, so that's gonna be happening. The poster will be up in the back hallway by the restroom, I imagine. You can check that out and do enjoy the Bjork. Good evening, can everybody hear me? So, Samantha Silva. Samantha Silva, I met for the first time in history class at Boise State, and I decided she was going to be my friend. She didn't go for it quite as quickly as one would wish. It took several weeks of seduction, but in the end, it worked out really well. Samantha is a beautiful writer. She always surprises me even when I think I know her well enough to know what she's going to say, she says something different. So I know you'll enjoy hearing her read tonight. She does have one secret, so I'll let that loose here among just us. She's a Dickens addict. For some of you, that's a plus, and for some of you, that's a minus. But Samantha takes the best of Dickens. She takes his intimacy, his enthusiasm, his love of life, his attention to detail, and she eschews the wordiness that sometimes he is prone to in his Victorian way, and she makes it modern. So I hope that you will see her love of Dickens and her love of life in her reading tonight. Thank you for being my friend, Samantha Silva. Thank you very much. I want to echo all that. Whoa! Echo all that. Um, the thanks to everyone: Christian, Polly, Michael, Elizabeth. Another inspired modern event. I can't remember what we did without the modern, really, honestly. <laughs> so, um, I did just finish a novel, my first completed novel. Um, 
a couple weeks ago. I'm not reading the novel, but um, it's based on a, a screenplay that I wrote about Charles Dickens, and so um, this, is, this is something quite different. It's called The Gatherer. My father was an economist. He admired the simple slopes of supply and demand, the perfect bowing of the Laffer curve, the down-tilting ridgelines that signaled every man's indifference map. He couldn't brook myths, superstition, or fairy tales, all unreliable things that couldn't be charted. But as soon as my sister and I could draw stick figures, he taught us to plot points on our Cartesian plane, the ordinate and abscissa conjoined, the infinite arrows of the x-axis, the y. All the magic one ever needed, he told us, was in the incontrovertible logic to the shapes that numbers made. I am my father's daughter. I've never made a great living at it, unless you could call the beeswax IV bags that used to dangle from my art studio ceiling a living, which would be a stretch. The gallery opening produced not one buyer. In fact, most people didn't get the work at all. Some thought they ought to, tried hard, leaned in to decipher the hundreds of tiny statistics penned meticulously in black ink across soft, sinuous surfaces the color of hardened honey. Rates of deforestation, ocean acidification, the number of slaves in the world today, average price paid, $90. It's Greek to me, I heard someone say to her companion and hung around to hear them hash out my meaning. But I added a magnifying glass the next day, simple black, hung on a tiny nail beside each piece as if I'd intended it just that way. It seemed to work for the collector who walked in that afternoon and bought one on the spot. He liked how the beeswax felt like skin, once I pointed it out, and the weight of the magnifying glass in his hand. He never asked what I meant by them, the catalog of small statistics, and I liked that about him. I was a collector myself. It started with small things, Italian stamps as a girl, the requisite seashells, coins of course, but only nickels from before I was born. You have to draw lines somewhere. I moved on to butterflies, moths, and bugs, airy skeletons of small animals, pods, thorns, rusted nails. I kept jars of things, the beginnings of my artist's apothecary, the detritus of days gone by, lost time and worlds. For an entire year, I gathered black river stones worn silk smooth by water. They were everywhere, in my backpack pant pockets deep in the crumb-filled crevices of my father's favorite chair. They spilled out in the laundry, tumbled in the dryer, drove my mother to banish me to, once to the one local fluff and fold. I rubbed them like worry stones and wondered whether water worried too. Some years later, I collected men for a while, but they didn't keep well. And then there was Simon, whom I meant to marry, but if timing is everything, maybe ours was all wrong. After he left, I estimated he'd spent over a hundred hours scratching my back. Because I equated love with that sort of thing, I felt sure he'd loved me more than any man had. I thought I should give something up, do penance. I hadn't meant to seem joyless, but I could see his point. At first, I tried to remember why he'd loved me at all, whether joy was in my repertoire because once you've had back scratching and lost it, you kick yourself. <laughs> I stopped working with hot wax altogether, sent my griddle off to Goodwill, gave muffin tins full of pigmented wax cakes to a school down the way, scraped the last hardened drops off my studio floor, still surprised by how the slightest human warmth returns it to malleable softness. 
My sister was the one who'd initiated me years ago after our attempted seance flopped. We darkened the closet with my father's gray tweed coat pushed against the crack under the door, but all we had was a lock of his peppery hair and no idea how to use it. Drip it onto your skin, she whispered, handing me the lighted candle and showed me how to pinch myself to counteract the brief burn of those first few drops. We traded the candle back and forth in silence, its scant illumination dancing across our earnest girl faces. Even then, I liked how the hot liquid conformed quickly to my palm, replicated every line and fault, made me a new skin. I wanted to seal my entire body in it, climb out through one tiny hole, the belly button maybe, birth myself backwards, leave a translucent hole, a soft shell, a carapace, be only skin, just skin. It was for that, maybe, that I wrapped two encaustic portraits in brown paper and mailed them overseas to my sister's address. The rest of the paintings I gave to a friend or sold for whatever was offered. I missed the smell of beeswax on my skin, but it was a false penance. What I should have given up were the numbers, the facts and figures I'd accumulated to make sense of the world, income inequality, rates of consumption, the number of planets it would take to sustain our habit, 21. The more I had, the more I wanted, until I came to spend obsessive hours reading, skimming, thumbing through, searching for just one more startling statistic, the perfect ironic fact of our inevitable human demise in the face of wanting everything. Simon called it my house of cards, but I knew a single card couldn't weigh more than a fourteenth of an ounce and told him my edifice had towering possibilities. He kissed my brow and reminded me that even steel-girded towers fall. Monuments to engineering greatness crumble in the blink of an eye. You can't see the flaw that will bring them down, he said. It isn't the math that's wrong. You just can't calculate fate. I dated hunters mostly, stock traders, lawyers, entrepreneurs, men who had too much money, even more ambition, who thought my art gave them edge. I usually found them at my openings where people wore requisite black and talked in hushed tones about artistic intent. I listened like a voyeur, wanting to know what my intent had been. I thought most of it was crap, the art that is. I could walk into a gallery and spot the ones who had spent too much on my work. I sometimes felt obliged to sleep with them. I hoped this one or that one would venture a guess at what I meant by it all and I would recognize it as the truth. But their guesses were crap too. Simon was my first gatherer. He was sitting behind an old mahogany desk in the glossy new addition to the public library, which I had to admit succeeded as architecture. The heavy desk was a remnant from the library's turn of the century past, but it suited him. From across the room, I could see his dark curly hair and the white button pinned to his hastily ironed denim shirt. When I got closer, I could see it said, ask me. So I asked him, and he looked up with lovely brown eyes and led me right to the answer. He called himself the Ask Me Man. Besides his eyes, I liked his can-do spirit, the aquiline curve of his nose, that he bought his history books at the annual library sale, the cast-offs and never-minds, the out-of-fashions, the misfits. His history of histories, he liked to say. It was important to know, Simon told me, what we thought mattered when. Whenever Simon saw me coming, he would smile and say, what's the question? I'd smile back and say, well, what's the answer? I wasn't really the smiling sort, so I knew something was up. 
He asked me out for coffee, which was a little outside the librarian reading public relationship, but we threw caution to the wind. There was a place across the street with airy yellow walls and high windows. I had a latte and a lemon poppy seed muffin with real bits of bitter peel. Simon ordered a double espresso, swirled it around three times in his cup and drank it in one gulp. I thought it was manly. For a gatherer, he was surprisingly manly. When we sat down, a dog-eared economist fell out of my worn canvas bag. Simon picked it up. It was so old. George Bush was on the cover, arms akimbo, under a super title, Je ne regrette rien. <laughs> Simon shook his head and we laughed. We laughed easily together. He asked me about my project. I didn't know there would be IV bags at that point, only that I was collecting statistics to write on something. I thought wax would be involved. What kind of statistics? the kind that could make your head explode if you weren't careful. He asked when I would have enough, and I said I didn't know, but that I'd have to stop sometime. Maybe when my head explodes, I said, but I didn't mean it as a joke. I hadn't realized how much I wanted someone to laugh at me. Before Simon, I'd spent almost a year without laughter. I called it my year of the introvert, but really it was more like a lifetime. Now and then you need someone to tell you to cut the crap. It helps if they scratch your back. The first time Simon stayed through the night, I told him about how when my sister and I were nine and seven respectively, we shared a bed and took turns telling stories while we scratched each other's back. Switch, we would say at the end of the story, which was never a happily ever after type affair, and turn the other way. My sister's stories had brainy fairy princesses who denied most of their suitors, often with a bracing dose of humiliation. Mine were about lost children, orphans who had to make their way in the cruel world and overcome dark obstacles. There was never a mother in sight. I realized in the telling of it that our ritual back scratching had been less for affection than survival. We were never schooled in the ways of love. My parents kept a king-size bed all their married life but stayed to their respective shores, a vast, unnavigable sea between. It was easier when we were small, I could see now, easier to make us the center of a universe that in fact had no center at all. They never spoke a harsh word in front of us, but the silences were long and tortured. There was one entire week when mother spoke to no one but the cats. My father may have died in self-defense. No one had scratched my back since then. No one told me a story. Until Simon, it had never occurred to me that back scratching could come without a quid pro quo. He moved in six months after the first latte. Simon owned just a futon, an espresso machine top rated by Consumer Reports, and his books. So we decided he should come to my place. I had the studio in the back and my apothecary, which I was loath to give up. Maybe if I could have put my statistics in one of the jars and found a place for them on a shelf, things might have turned out differently. Simon could build shelves. He was that kind of library guy. He could do it all. Early on, he admired how sincerely I recounted my dire facts, said my eyes came alive when I did, even sparkled. He liked my no-nonsense auburn hair, the way it curled only at the back of my neck, the way my body released when his fingertips lingered there. My Achilles nape, he called it. He liked to study my early renderings, the charcoal nudes and loosely painted self-portraits. He said if he were a collector, he would collect me, but I said he couldn't afford me, not on his salary. 
For his birthday, I gave him the painting he liked best, pulled it out of storage, and protested vaguely when he hung it over the mantel in the front room. It was strange to look at myself every day. I hardly recognized her. But Simon seemed to, often looking up from his book to gaze into her eyes. He liked the way my hair looked like fire. I accused him of preferring me on the mantle contained in a frame. He smiled and reached for my socked foot, but he didn't deny it. For my birthday, he took me to the mountains. I'd only been half joking when I proclaimed myself an indoor person. I walked briskly five miles a day, but always the same five miles, twice around the park plus eight city blocks, the same 10,000 steps. Simon pointed out that all the things I kept in jars came from the very outdoors I eschewed. You could tell how old they were, he said, because even with the lids tightly screwed on, they'd made their own dust. It was time to replenish. He said you had to go to the source now and then to do it. I'd spent the first 12 years of my life outside with my sister, staking claims to undiscovered wildness, finding forts in the underbrush, furnishing fairy houses in the gnarled hollows of dead trees. When my sister's breasts budded, she lost interest, willed our world to me. I called her a traitor to our cause, went my flat-chested way alone, and then my body betrayed me too. I hadn't realized how small my world had become since then, how closely drawn its boundaries. I hadn't realized it showed. Simon rented a small cabin that sat at the end of a long dirt road with a final stretch of washboard that made your guts hurt. He slowed down, but not to stop my head rattling. Look, he whispered, bringing the car to a cautious full stop, a female osprey. He cut the engine and pointed to a large nest of sticks and limbs perched on a utility pole. How do you know it's a girl, I whispered back. He pointed out the darkly speckled necklace across her otherwise white upper breast. She's guarding the nest from us. She won't leave while we're here. Simon knew a lot about birds. Migratory raptors in particular had taken hold of his kid imagination and never let go. He knew about the osprey's reticulated tarsi, its rounded talons, a reversible outer toe for grasping fish, their mottled cinnamon-colored eggs. He admired that they pair and mate for life, returning each year to the same exact spot for their spring courtship, which begins with the male's ritual sky dance to gain his lady's favor and ends with refurbishing the nest. Only if their mating fails, he said, do they abandon each other. Simon was exhilarated in her presence, and it was contagious. He even knew her genus name. Pandian, he couldn't resist telling me, after a Greek king whose daughters were turned into birds. As a punishment, I wanted to know. Simon couldn't remember why the gods had made them birds, or maybe he just wanted to sit in silence and watch her, which we did until the windows fogged up and our toes froze over. Even then, he drove on reluctantly. He didn't want to be the first to go, I could tell. Wished she would lift off her nest, show us her glorious wingspan and fly as some signal that she knew we meant her no harm. The cabin sat on a lake point with a silvery pier and a view that went on forever. When we got there, we rebundled ourselves and took a long walk on the lake's edge, holding tight each other's wool-gloved hands. I had held hands with lots of hunters, but no one's grasp was as sure as his. The next day, we walked three miles back to the nest in hopes of spotting Pandian's daughter. That's what I called her, thinking she should have a name, even if she was nowhere in sight. Standing right below the nest now, 
I could see bright red yarn threaded into the Spanish moss and soft grasses, and tinsel too. They're a practical pair, Simon said. To me, it seemed more like decorating. We waited a long time, but she never came. To warm ourselves on the icy march back, we played Desert Island, Desert Island everything, food, music, movies. I questioned the notion you could watch movies on a desert island, but Simon said it was an island of our own invention and anything was possible. Then I said maybe watching a movie was like being stranded because it was just you in the dark and everyone else went away, even the person right next to you who couldn't know the experience you were having, nor you his. Simon gave me a sideways smile and shook his head. When we got to paintings, he didn't need any time at all. He said the one I gave him, the portrait of an earlier me, would be one of his five. In fact, the other four didn't really matter. I still don't know why it buckled me so, brought an end to our game, left us in silence. I stopped and drew close to the neck of his flannel shirt, so soft against my cheek I thought I could live there. Marry me, I said under my breath, but I don't think Simon heard. I'm sure I got pregnant that night. I had charted my cycle for years, even when I wasn't with anyone, even when I was on the pill, which I quit when it became clear that women had been used as guinea pigs for decades of what amounted to wide-scale hormone experiments. I knew I ovulated on day 13 of a 27-day cycle. 17 years of record-keeping failed me. We drove home the next day, missed Pandian's daughter again, but we vowed to come back next year to repeat our spring courtship. I had never planned anything so far ahead, and that was exhilarating, too. 17% of Americans think the world will end in their lifetime. I wondered how many thought it would end this year, because it would be nice to come back. When my cycle stretched to 32 days, I knew something was amiss, but I didn't tell Simon. I felt ridiculous peeing on a white stick, hiding in the bathroom, even though he was at work. I wrapped it in toilet paper and thought about keeping it, but I didn't know for what. You can't put a plastic stick in a baby book. Plus, I didn't want a baby. What's the question, he asked when he looked up from his desk, mahogany eyes smiling brightly. I said I didn't know, but we'd screwed up and I was pregnant. Simon grabbed his coat, took my arm gently, led me out and across the street. We didn't speak until his espresso arrived. I can't drink coffee, I said, bereft. He took my hand across the wobbly table. I apologized for making it sound like an accusation, especially in the library. He said he understood. I asked if he wanted a bite of my muffin, but only to make things feel normal. I never knew Simon to refuse an offer of food, to refuse any offer of kindness. I pushed the muffin between us. Simon broke off a piece with his fingers. Poppy seeds fell everywhere, bouncing off the plate onto the table. They were small and round and perfect. Later, I found them in the folds of my coat. What's the answer? I asked. We had never talked about children. I hadn't thought about anything past my next birthday, except the end of the world. I was more than twice the age of the teenage me who'd forged a note to get out of school so I could catch a bus to Planned Parenthood to have a pregnancy test that turned out negative. Late from too much stress, probably, they said, and sent me, sent me off with my first pack of pink pills. That night, I told my sister, who was outraged. Haven't we been through enough, she said, and warned me not to tell our mother, but it had never crossed my mind. I'd had stupid, unsatisfying sex with someone I shouldn't have just to try to feel something other than sadness about my father's death. But my mother would take my misadventure as a personal affront. 
Now I studied my hand under the fluorescent lights of my doctor's office, purple veins swollen like spring rivers under thin blotchy skin. I have my mother's hands, I thought, and like her, there's not one tiny bone in any of these fingers with the least maternal bent. My doctor's voice softened while we weighed the options. There was no scolding in it or sympathy. She made the appointment for me herself. By Tuesday, it would be over. Simon and I took long walks that Saturday, let silences stand between us, watched old movies in bed. I craved salt, and popcorn was the perfect delivery system. He swept the salt away before we slept, but there were grains against my legs all night. I tossed and turned. On Sunday morning, I woke to the comforting hum and hiss and clatter of cups. When the smell of waffles became too much, I realized I was hungry like the old me. Some threshold had been passed. He didn't look up from his paper when I walked in. I kissed his neck, but he stiffened. Trickling maple syrup over my waffle, I tried to say the thing that had been hard to say, if obvious, that it wasn't a world to bring a child into, and I was hardly the one to do it in any case. He gazed out the window, jaw tight. I knew he felt the choice was mine. I didn't feel judged, but something be hung between us, and here it was. All the statistics I said, I think I've been constructing a case. For what? He asked as calmly as he could muster. A world that isn't fit for children. It's an unwinnable proposition. Life isn't about winning, he said. I felt his anger for the first time. It also isn't about going to school in a gas mask. He stood abruptly, gathered his plate and silverware, making more noise than he meant to. We devolved into triteness too quickly and had nowhere to go. We both knew it. If people made the problems, people can solve them was the next place he would have had to go. But for two years, I had cataloged every which way we were doomed. Nuclear proliferation, drought, famine. I felt sure a pandemic on the scale of 1918 was in our near future. Pick a disaster, I would have said. Pointless folly. Every year they say there's going to be a pandemic, he would have shot back. But one year they'll be right, I said in my own head, and hoped my lips weren't moving. We hardly spoke the rest of the day. I ate day-old popcorn, watched a bad movie on the couch. Simon took a walk alone, then retreated to a book. A shared weariness settled on the house. I went to bed complaining of a cold. That night, I woke from a stillborn dream, hair damp at the back of my neck. I didn't know where I was, where anyone was. I reached for my mother in the darkness beside me, but the bed was empty. In half sleep, I felt for the floor, stumbled, reeling into the fall hall to find her. Couldn't remember where the lights were, which room was hers. Sometimes she slept on the couch, maybe there. But I found Simon instead, and panic rose up inside me. If I couldn't find her, how would I ever be rid of this pain flooding my being? this shattering aloneness, this wound at the bottom of the world. I must have stood there for several seconds, awareness returning, but when I saw the painting on the mantel, I knew right where I was and with whom. But I also knew with perfect clarity that it was she who had dreamed the dream, the fire-haired girl who knew what mattered when. All the rest were strangers here, even Simon, who couldn't save us. The next morning, he went to work early without a word. I curled up and fell hard back to sleep straight through a rain-drenched morning beyond lunch, my ritual tea. I woke in the late afternoon to blood-soaked sheets. I managed to get to my doctor's office in time for the worst. Simon met me there. He held my hand. 
One out of five across the animal kingdom, my doctor said, and just like this. I was grateful neither of them mentioned the terrible irony of nature having spared me. Back home, Simon rubbed my back and made me barley soup, which I couldn't eat even if I appreciated the, appreciated the gesture. He sat often at my side, reading his book aloud, his deep, soothing voice wafting over, wafting over me. It was his favorite Jane Austen, not a natural disaster in sight. Once when I turned toward him, I saw a quiet sadness in his eyes, but still, I couldn't recognize it as my own. Each of us has his own indifference map. Here was his, and here was mine. I wonder now whether he knew then he would go, but we cannot know when leaving begins. After a few days, I forced myself to return to my studio, dusted my jars, rearranged furniture, cleaned brushes. One morning, I printed out all the statistics and started copying them onto parchment in tiny, perfect letters. It was an exercise more, exercise more than anything, but it passed the time and drew me deeper in. I found comfort in them. You could know things, even awful, foreseeable things. You could write them down and make them real. Simon stayed at the library longer than usual, volunteered for evening hours. I suppose he was glad to see me working again, but he stopped asking questions. Maybe he feared where it was headed. Tired of puttering, I agreed to have lunch with an old friend, a doctor I'd once dated, who did most of the talking, which might be why I left him. I couldn't remember, didn't care. Leaving was nothing to me then. I felt impatient, pushed my salad around the plate. But when he told some story about a nurse who'd poked a patient 14 times trying to get the IV drip in, he got my attention. He agreed to save me some saline bags. I'd need some tubing, too, and he said it was no problem. It seemed to make the lunch worthwhile. Simon found the IV bags when they arrived on our doorstep somewhat off-putting. I could tell by the way he didn't ask what they were for and the way I didn't tell him. At first, I tried writing on the bags themselves, but I'd never wanted my work to last forever, and you could just feel the half-life of the plastic. So I thought of it as a vessel instead. I would make a mold of one, cast new IV bags out of something unexpected, soft, and degradable. When the mold was built, I poured the melted wax in and waited. Simon brought me pork chops and potatoes au gratin on a tray, but didn't stay like he used to. He just tucked an errant auburn lock behind my ear, the garlic on his fingers mingling with the beeswax in my hair. I could feel his warm, sweet breath on the base of my neck. Of all his touches, it's the only one I recall with every part of my being. He stayed for my disastrous gallery opening, but left a few days after. No big speeches, no fight, not even a parting line. He took my portrait with him, which left a peculiarly empty spot over the mantel. I was surprised to find I missed it. Maybe that was the girl Simon had loved. Maybe having her was enough. Anyway, he had had enough of who I was then. I didn't beg him to stay, didn't tell him I would change, be better, love him more. I had begged my father to stay, but he didn't. So what was the use? He had wanted to come home near the end, my father, but mother wouldn't have it. We weren't equipped to care for him, couldn't afford a 24-hour nurse. It would be too much for the girls, she told him, which meant it was too much for her. At first, she wouldn't accept that he was dying, and then she wouldn't forgive him for it. I went alone to the hospital, always before school, because he was awake and alert for a few minutes then, which was all either of us could take. He called it the happiest part of his day. 
The strange routine of hospital life made it less startling with each visit. A nurse would come in to change his IV drip, her final task on the graveyard shift. She'd pat him on the foot and open the blinds. I'd already be parked on the other side by his bed, backpack at my feet. The nurse and my father, each in their own exhaustion, were past pleasantries, like the old married couple my parents had never been. What did you bring us today, she'd ask me, her face turned toward the day's first light. I pulled a small mason jar out of the front pocket of my pack, handed it to my father. He brought it close to his eye, trying to focus through the morphine that dripped slowly into his arm. Moss, I said, smiling falsely back. She changed the bag of morphine with quick rote movements. Here's your breakfast, she'd say to him, their private joke. I hated her, hated her pretending. Whatever was in those bags was sustenance of any kind. I imagined the tube taped to his veins sucking the life out of him. Every day he was a little worse. Can't you see, I wanted to say to her, he's not getting any better. You're killing him. I wished I could steal him away, stop time, renounce my budding breasts, live forever in my girlhood just to keep him with me. Each day, each jar was an offering to the gods, an appeal for his life, a prayer. I would surrender it all, everything I loved, to have my father stay, but nature betrayed me. Moss, my father repeated, turning the jar slowly in his unsteady hand. My universe got smaller after he was gone. Mother's grief was stoically displayed, and she made it no secret we should follow her lead. So I turned inward, drawing an ever-diminishing circumference around my pain. My collecting dwindled, but I kept the jars I had. They were a memory museum I could see now. I was the keep keeper of things my father had touched. Now Simon was gone too, and his leaving felt like death. The reservoir of tears I had never cried breached its man-made banks. Tears ran in rivulets even into my ears, pooling in cartilage folds. But nothing could contain my unexpected grief. I cried for three days, but it felt like 300. My mother called me a week later on our usual Sunday. Our monthly conversations were obligatory and predictable. We knew what the parameters were, how to stay on safe ground. Between us, we had years of practice. I pulled the comforter to my chin when I heard her chipper hello. She has pitch-perfect phone manners that cleverly hide the truth of things. It was oddly reassuring. She knew that Simon had left, my sister had told her. In the beginning, I'd kept him away from her. She saw people's flaws quickly, and I didn't want to hear them, even though I knew Simon would be interested. My mother can be disarmingly charming while she's cutting you off at the knees. So I was surprised when she took a shine to him when they finally met and confined herself to pointing out my flaws. But she squeezed my hand when we said goodnight. I like him, she whispered. I like him for you. She tucked a misbehaving lock of hair behind my ear as she'd done since I was small. The battle of the fringe, she used to call it as if we were English. She had we had waged war over my hair all our life together. She called me a hard-headed tender scalp when I was little and whined my way through the torture of her Mason Pearson bore bristle brush. But that night, standing in the doorway after dinner with Simon, her long aristocratic fingers lightly grazed my cheek. Her touch was tentative and foreign, but lovely too. Seeing Simon help me off with my coat and hold my chair had awakened in her some tenderness toward me. Her words were less a pronouncement than a plea, 
let Simon love me just that. But her touch said Simon was right to love me. And even now I can close my eyes and remember how grateful I was for her light caress. She had never hidden her ambivalence about motherhood. It hadn't been what she expected, had been a terrible strain on the marriage. She hadn't lived up to who she thought a mother ought to be and had given up a successful career to fail at it. And if you had it to do over, I had to ask her now, in the abstract? You can't make your children abstract. It's not a fair question. If we'd never existed, never could exist, if you were imagining it all over again, what would you change? There was a long silence on her end. She had given up smoking when my father became ill, but I could still hear it, the sound of her lips puckering around a speckled filter, sucking slowly in, blowing out, the sigh that smoke released. Everything, darling, she said, her voice quivering. I regret it all. Well, this could fell you. But there was no blame in it, not of my father, not of my sister and me, not of the cards life had dealt her. It was simply the truth of our being human. Do it all differently. Be not who we were. Of course that's what we'd do if we had the doing to do again. It stayed with me, what she said, when my birthday loomed this year. I was surprised to find a card in the mail from Simon, who'd taken six months in the South on some library exchange program. He remembered that he owed me a story. He wrote the story of King Pandion, son of Erictonius, heir to the Athenian throne, who inadvertently abandoned his daughters to a terrible fate. It was a tragic tale, replete with false love, mistaken identity, lies, fratricide, infanticide, a severed tongue. Philomela was raped, Procne rendered speechless. But taking pity on them, the gods turned one into a nightingale, the other a swallow. Not to punish them was Simon's point. Where humans had failed, the gods stepped in to save them. I was sure Simon was delighted to find a tale with so many calamities and disasters rolled into one. But it was full of hope, too. Full of him. I took it as a sign that I should go back to the cabin on my own. I'd spring cleaned the studio, emptied my jars. The ivy bags were gone, the mold discarded. I'd wrap the portraits of my mother and father together in brown paper and bid them a fair goodbye. I knew my penance was over and its end was worth marking. I wanted to unravel time, go back, be someone different than I had been, but forward was the only direction on offer. Some part of me knew Simon would be pleased that I'd go back. I might even write to tell him. I drove to the cabin on a bright, brisk morning, waiting for the long stretch of washboard that would announce I had nearly arrived. But the road had been paved. Someone had smoothed the way. And then I saw her, Pandian's daughter. I recognized her markings. It was the same speckled necklace. She perched regally in her large, imperfect nest, pieced together with broken twigs and limbs, repatted with soft grasses, cast-offs, and never minds. The red yarn had faded to naked pink, but the tinsel still shimmered in the mountain light. She peered out from her chocolate brown mask, wary to all dangers, pretending not to see me. I turned the engine off and watched her until my breath fogged the windshield. Then, unable to see, I pulled a sleeve over my lightly curled fist and rubbed myself a looking hole. I know she thought I was a threat, but I felt close to her for those few minutes. After all, she was a gatherer too. 
We are Pandian's daughters, I thought, finally pulling myself away when I felt her tire of keeping watch. I drove slowly, letting the windows defog, and was well down the road when I gazed into my rearview mirror in time to see her take the wind on large white flat wings against a pearly late winter sky and soar. Thank you. That was fantastic. Thank you, Samantha. That was, that was uh, hypnotizing. It was awesome. Wonderful story. And yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, I don't know. I'm a little bit sort of uh, taken aback by that whole sort of woven tale you just laid out for us and the fact that everybody was so amazingly is like wrapped the entire time. So one more time, let's give it up. Yeah. We're gonna move into like break time here where you guys can get some more drinks and food and mingle and all that kind of stuff. And I would love you guys to answer or ask, excuse me, ask some questions at the end that the readers can all answer. Um, <clears throat> all three of them will get up here at the end if you guys wanna ask any questions about what they've written, process, reasons, inspiration, all that kind of stuff. Log those in there now, and at the end of the um, evening, we'll actually have a little Q&A session. So we'll take a break, hey, and then we'll have uh, Tish up. and Stacy coming up here Settle to uh, do their reading in about 15 minutes or so. So enjoy. Rediscover's over there. Check out their stuff. And uh, yeah, and there we go. We have the second half of tonight's campfire stories coming up here. We have Tish Thornton coming up in uh, about a minute and a half, I'd say. I just want to say thanks one more time to everybody, and it's been amazing. I mean, all summer and you know the fall now. I mean, people like I said are just wrapped by these stories and being so considerate to the writers and just and to the other members of the crowd and just sitting here and being into what's going on, and, and that's pretty unusual. And I gotta say, even like the sirens in the background were somehow perfect for the story. So all of it worked, has worked so amazingly all summer long. And, and you know, you guys have been a huge part of it. Those have been coming out to these events, so. Um, but yes, we have uh, Sam, who just read a wonderful story to us, who's gonna come up here and introduce Tish, who she's known for some time. And Tish is gonna read a short nonfiction, essayic sort of piece, as I understand it. And then we're gonna have Stacy er Erickson, who's gonna read some poetry to us. So it's gonna be awesome. Come on up, Sam. So um, I actually haven't known Tish Thornton very long. I, f I feel like I, I feel like I have, but um, yeah, as a writer ever fighting her isolation, I decided a year ago I really wanted to have a writing group, and I happened to be at the Modern Hotel one night, <laughs> where and and um, Rob Thornton overheard me talking about a writing group, and he said, "Oh God, my ex-wife is really talented." <laughs> so. <laughs> So I sent an email, cold email to Tish. I'd never met her, even though we both lived in Boise for a long time, and said, here's what I, what I want to do. He say, he's, Rob said she's a really talented poet. I sent her a cold email, and I'm like, 
uh, you know, you don't have to, you could think about it. And she's like, yes, I am in. So, so that's how I, I came to know Tish, who is by day a liturgist for the Catholic Church, which if you knew her, would, you would find funny because she's sassy and smart and cynical and fascinated, though, by the mystery of the human experience. And that's, I think, what her writing is about. And here she is to read a short essay. Thanks. Hi. So now you all know I'm indebted to my ex-husband. <laughs> and I'm Catholic. Um, so I'm, I'm going to read an essay, as Sam said, and it's probably about five minutes long. It's a true story. It has a little poetry in it and a little bit of a story, too, so kind of a genre hog. I want to put them all into one thing. And this is the first time I've ever had to read with these, so bear with me. 26 years ago, I had just graduated from college and was living in Seattle. I was young, broke, and living in a city of any size for the first time, having grown up in small towns in rural states. I spent my mornings either looking for jobs or going to interviews. I had a particular suit I wore for these, a cream-colored linen skirt and jacket with a pink silk top. The top tied with a big bow at the neck, and I had a gold necklace with a tiny chip of a diamond on the pendant. That is what I was wearing that morning at the bus stop on my way to yet another interview. It was a gray day the way only Seattle can be gray in early June. At the bus stop, everyone was doing what people do at bus stops, avoiding each other's eyes, reading the paper, listening to Walkmans, shrugged into their clothes and hunched over to make sure no one approached them. Everyone except one guy, and he made a beeline for me. They always did. <laughs> he was young, probably about my age at that time, maybe a little younger, slender and dark, with a sick, thick accent. He was outfitted in a bizarre collection of mismatched items, plum-colored track pants, a yellow t-shirt with the sleeves ripped off, a pair of women's shoes, that tied up above his ankles and had thick, wavy soles, orthopedic shoes that old ladies and nurses and waitresses wear. He was the kind of dirty that comes from sleeping outside every night and not having a place to shower. His fingertips were stained purple. Despite my lack of encouragement, he started to talk and talk. He told me his whole story. His name was Francisco, and he was from Mexico City. He described the city for me in exaggerated language. He said there were so many people there, you could walk from one end of the city to the other on top of people's heads and never touch the pavement. He said the sun was gold and hot, the air thick with pollution and music. He told me he'd come to Washington to pick cherries and he'd been sleeping with his brother in an abandoned building downtown. He was going to take the bus as far as he could toward the orchards. He was tired because he'd been up all night playing cards. As he talked, I could see pictures, the wet orchards where he worked, 
the golden Mexican sun, the echoing, shadowed building with boarded up, broken out windows, the group of men in a corner of it, playing cards until early morning, laughing and drinking. His eyes flicked over me constantly from head to toe, then out into the street, then back at me, at my silk blouse, and the diamond chip nestled at my throat. He looked at my necklace so much, it began to make me nervous. I'd been braced for the ask ever since he approached me, but now I was starting to think, rather than bum some change off me, he was going to just grab my necklace and twist it off and jump on his bus. I hoped my bus would come first and deliver me from this garrulous, homeless boy. But his bus came first, and as it pulled in, sure enough, he reached out his hand, and because I was backing away, he grabbed my hand. I was shocked. I didn't pull away, I just stood still, his stained fingers circling my wrist. He turned my hand over and then he dropped something into it. I looked down. It was a coin, a peso. Disoriented and frightened, all I could say was, what? And he said, I want to give you something. I want to give you something you don't have. I don't want you to forget me. It has been 26 years and I have not forgotten him. I think of him every day. I thought of him the other night when I read a poem called Nativity by Li Chen. The last line of that poem is this. Out of what little earth and duration, out of what immense goodbye, each must make a safe place of his heart before so strange and wild a guest as God approaches. That was Francisco, a strange and wild guest. And what's more, he also understood the first part of that line. Out of what little earth and duration, out of what immense goodbye. From the minute he saw me, our goodbye had started, and he knew that. And he was preparing for it from his first word. And for good reasons and bad ones, my heart was not a safe place for that strange and wild guest. Why was it so important to Francisco that I not forget him? We spent 10 minutes together in a bus stop in a city that wasn't home to either one of us. And whenever I remember that day, I'm bemused by the emphasis on what people are wearing in my memory. Francisco demonstrated forcefully what the fairy tales always say. Love comes in many disguises and it doesn't always look the way we expect it to. He took me by the wrist and pulled me into his story, and in some ways, I've never left it. I still have that coin, and sometimes I take it out and think about what the universe might try to give me that I'm too fearful to take. As I ask my 21st century American question, what's the quid pro quo? If I take your coin, what will you take from me? There is an abyss between us. Here we are on this little earth, in this little duration, faced with an immense goodbye. Is my heart a safe place? Because a strange and wild guest is approaching. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm supposed to introduce Stacy now. 
And Elizabeth told me to be sure to mention the writers group. Sam already did. Um, the thing about introducing Stacy is the same as the thing about Sam introducing me. I haven't really known her that long. Um, and what I know about her comes from writers group. I will tell you the things that are important about Stacy, I think. Um, first of all, she asked me to tell you she's not a slam poet. So if you're expecting that, it's not going to happen. Um, she is sort of a jack of all trades. She truly knows everything. And she's a magpie. She can take little tiny artifacts from anywhere that don't look notable to anybody but her and make an amazing story out of it. She was very nervous about reading tonight. And we had this texted conversation where I said to her, you know, people just want to hear a good story. They want to hear something beautiful. And I think you can do that. And you are about to hear something beautiful from Stacy. That was a great introduction. <laughs> oh dear. So, um, four years ago, I was challenged to a poetry challenge by a poet in uh, Canada. His name's Samuel Peralta. And this is one of the first challenges that we gave each other. Um, it's based on Lee Poe's poem, The River Merchant's Wife. That was translated famously by Ezra Pound. The girl in the poem misses her husband, suddenly has realized that it was a match that was made officially, but she loves him, and he has disappeared down the river, and she doesn't know where he is. So each of us, he and I, wrote a answer to the river merchant's wife. And this comes from a letter down the river from another woman. Young mistress, the new moon has risen three times since I too waited at the gate. I imagine you standing there now, watching a hungry boatman climb the path from the Kayang. Such a one came to me, head bowed, gazing at his straw sandals, a letter such as this one in his hand. That night, the geese circled crying blindly overhead. The deep river frog drifted between us. They called one to the other, heavy wings laboring in the dusk, the damp shroud obscuring any safe resting place upon the water. I know what it is to be a downstream bride. You wait, wondering, is he now passing divination rock? Now green shoal, now sunken drum. Are the girls they call the white peonies blooming in Shinsi City? And did he stop there? Surely he bribed the king of the rapids enough, but not too much, and hid salt from the taxmen. If they lost a towman in the rocks, did he burn paper money for that spirit? You wait. You light incense, as I did, at the talk of war and more robber lords taking heads in the lower gorge. I know what it is to be a downstream bride. 
This letter is in your hand now, and the ink smudges your white fingers. The river has taken your beloved. It has taken mine. Young mistress, can you hear the wild geese cry? Young mistress, where will they rest tonight? So I don't usually write funny poems, so maybe I should more often. But this one is a little, has a little humor to it. Um, the Etruscans used to have mirrors, and the mirrors were sacred objects on the back of which they would engrave a story. And um, this is my imagined version of what might be in the back of one of those Etruscan mirrors. Turinhynthia was the Etruscan version of Venus. So this young girl is praying to Venus. Oh, Turinhynthia, send me a man who loves me reclining. Not standing up to work the olive press like those tribal girls down in Rome. Nor in a back room sitting at the loom, a wordless maiden throwing the shuttle from Athens to Sparta, year after year, hour after hour. My lady, I entreat you. Send me a man who loves me reclining. Not kneeling, eyes cast down, though all men look with favor on a woman thus. Well, great. <laughs> Samantha said this would happen to me. So I guess we will just move on. I have a little trouble with papers. This one doesn't really need any introduction. <laughs> the way it's done. If you would woo me, be cognizant of altitude and the fluctuations of pressure when the thunder breathes through the nape of the high pass, and lightning is your tongue. Take me into the desert, if you would know me. Memorize the watershed, canyon, arroyo, gully, and creek. The ages pass in fortuny silk, like cloud shadows that lie forever between us. To find my heat, stop and pull over when the sun lowers itself upon the dead grasses and the blaze can last an hour. Take me into the desert if you would know my sinew. Study the desert crust, a microclimate accrued across a thousand nights as ancient and fragile as hope. If you would gain my trust, do not ignore the plummeting raven as he falls for that other half and makes spirals of the prism darkness for the white light pleasure of it. If you would seduce me, take me into the desert. Spin incremental odometric pleasures on my skin, as smoky sweet as the dust plumes rising behind us on the long road out. For I am she 
that waits upon the pungent ridge, the basalt shadow, the firelight, and falls only as hard as the last flash flood. This one's called Dreaming Poland, and everyone asks me if it's true. Did I dream I was Poland? I did. It's true. I dreamed I was Poland, born to be bigger than my current size. My borders shifting, a matter for war and greater crimes, aching for mountains, circling the others, it is snowing in Warsaw, where my winter has a hunger more cruel than April. Who stands where so many have fallen? The wheat fields call for my lost gold. The river canyons have always been at war. My current slides down and down, tugging, tonguing the ridge of freedom where he lies opposite, sleepy and sated with bliss and Coca-Cola. I, in my smaller splendor, ripen, waiting for the grassland to turn, again and again, luring some savior home. So those are the short ones. These last two are a little longer. This one's called A Ghazal for the Curtain Call and Snow White. I don't know if you're familiar with the Ghazal. It's an Arabic form. Um, traditionally, it's a very sad love poem. And each stanza repeats one phrase. And each stanza is supposed to tell a story in itself and stand alone. And then they're all supposed to go together. A gazelle for the curtain call and Snow White. Yes, upon the invention of priceless porcelain, I broke my own china doll, seeing that she was the fairest of them all. The silent shards of her painted eyes were too bright by half, assuming herself to be the fairest of them all. Higgledy, cried onion obituaries in the dwarf kitchen, and roasted root vegetables, for he could not break Chanticleer's luminous ruby neck, a happy cockerel, and by far the fairest of them all. Why do innocents have such a weakness for apples? Pitch a smooth-skinned, ruby-painted fruit to them and see the whitest soul fall covetous, wondering, is that one the fairest of them all? Pale skin works, I think, with Midnight Starlight Revlon Permanent Hair Color number 29. Ruby painted fruit with Marilyn's Cherries in the Snow lipstick, if you like that sort of thing. The fairest of them all. Perfect toxicity uses pre-existing symptoms to induce death. One milliliter despair one gram grim, tincture of doubt, dread, dry-eyed insomnia, red dye number two, whisk in unbelief, 
as a potion, the fairest of them all. Why do none but I dance for the snow-white storm? My Quonset moon, my waiting wood, the Claire de Lune dew, the growling thunder, the moss between my toes, surely these are the fairest of them all. The seventh dwarf, wart-skinned Rumpel, retired to villainy in the manner of Judas, so terribly scarred by merely standing in the crowd to watch the sacerdotal prince come kissing the fairest of them all. That hooked nose and hairy seborrheic mole itched so often the problem with theatrical makeup. I leaned in, measuring my aged, dirt-poor, hard-life guys, minus fillers and Botox, against the other, the fairest of them all. Even under heavy sedation, I found my cut crystal sarcophagus absurd. Like the mercury behind her mirror, it reflects only sterile light. Now listen now, I say me. If a thing cannot rot, it will never be the fairest of them all. Whoa, whoa, whoa. not quite. <laughs> Contrary to urban legends, I didn't enjoy kissing her scarlet and comatose lips. A kiss should be urgent. Regress, ingress, egress. A pure and mutual exchange of chemical intention. It is rare, but it is the fairest of them all. Ingesting ill will, unwish, and nauseating projections of the other mother's cinematic shadow, one sinks under the ides, sliding riptides, slowed at the inky ridge of time until nothingness seems the fairest of them all. A kiss is a call, mouth to mouth, and I remember all. The bonfires on Avis Hill, lace curtain breezes, the scent of apricots, why water is like silk, flower fire, palinka. I wonder now if tomorrow will be the fairest of them all. All right, so one more. This one's on Wider's block, so I'm sure many of you can identify with this. Fear is the only punctuation at the end. Not a footnote, bibliographical, nor a side note containing otherwise forgotten documentation. The aureole of snow upon the streetlights, say, or your beard against my tongue the echo of sleet. Unfortunately, there is no semicolon planted in confidence of a noun-verb alliance to follow. An M-dash, I should be so fortunate again, spinning out the luxury of superfluous punctuation, promises of a line to come, not a verse break, nor a line break. Without a voice, I do not remember your scent. 
or the placement of hairs along your wrist. It is perilous to reimagine your fierce profile, your fingers closing my coat, the question of protocol. Ellipses are a drain on my pride, and hunger no longer infuses my pentameter. Not a half-moon reminder to breathe, not the comma serial, nor the comma biting hard on the next clause, nor the comma incorrect, nor the one that is not necessary before the word and, because there is no and. There is no and. You know, she warned me about the full stop. 60 years after the fire, I made cider from her words. My girl fingers, petal nails, adjusted the microphone. 108 candles waxed unlit beside us, and flamenco frosting bled into the white, white cake that no one would eat. She remembered buggy rides and the drying sheds at Floating Feather, the last stop on the streetcar of 1910, fat blue plums lying in their own sinking silver patina, waiting to be dry. And in the year she turned 50, a Valentine's Day fire consumed Mrs. Goykachia's narrative. Her boarding house burned to the ground, and nothing, she said, Nothing, not one thing, came afterwards. 60 years without additional punctuation. The vodka has lost that slow freeze lust. Another young girl has given me exotic tea with orders scrawled in hot blue ink that flows from her fingers like tomorrow's. Do not hoard. I will give you more. I am afraid. The teapot has gone cold. Gaius, Valerius, Catullus, and I are empty of kisses. And the sands of Libya remain. Is this the last full stop? I cannot say. I cannot say. Questions? Our light's gone limp, Polly, sorry. <laughs> we lost it. So, at this point in time, I want to say thanks to everyone once again. And Sam, Tish, if you want to come up here and answer some questions, that'd be fantastic. If anybody has any questions regarding Birds, <laughs> bus stops, what act? Chinese virtue. Yes, I know. <laughs> what happened to those lost pages? That was, <laughs> I've done that before, by the way, and that is like, it makes the heart drop. But it yeah. was fantastic. You played it off wonderfully. But if you guys would like to ask questions of these ladies, you know, I would love to help facilitate it, or they can actually just step up here and do it themselves and then. After that, we move on to the night. Um, a month from now, we have Al Heathcock as well as as well as, as, well as um, David Abrams and 
Abram's book, by the way, um, is now endorsed by Adrian Keene as he bought a copy, Fobbit. Um, Adrian Keene, local poet and a man who's going to be uh, down at, uh, I believe, the cabin on the 7th of November reading. So, um, Fobbit is something that you guys, is a totally different experience than anything I've ever read about the Iraq War, or the Afghanistan War, and all that kind of stuff. So, pick that up if you can and ask some questions. And thanks for coming out. Any questions? <laughs> Feels like I should have a memorized day. Eh? Aren't you so, dying to hear the end, though? Wait, so, so you talk, so you talk to some guests. <laughs> <laughs> you Email me. Your, your writing Okay. Sorry, you <laughs> so, no, I think we'd all have a different answer, but I would say for me, um, these are the best readers I've ever met. They're excellent readers. They're not, they don't soft pedal. They're really truthful and the criticism is really useful. Um, and um, they've, we've prompted each other, especially this summer, I think, don't you think, um, with different projects. So when we feel a little lazy, just having a group to be accountable to really helps. As I said, I think isolation is the enemy for a writer. For, for any artist, isolation is very difficult. And it's, you know, it's hard not to have colleagues and peers. And I mean, there, you know, there are ways to connect with people, but mostly you're, it's you and against the page. And it's a you know, war most days. So, um, so it's, you know, it's, I really wanted to have people who, I have a very thick skin, um, and I really want people to tear my work apart and make it better. I don't, I don't want people to say, oh my God, you're so talented and wonderful, and, you know, if they're in my writing group, I want everyone else to say that, but, <laughs> but in my writing group, I, I want them to say, you know, you're not, this, you're, this, you can tear this apart and remake this, and, and it's been, we were gentle with each other in the beginning and now we're getting much harder. But I need, uh, you know, I really, really crave criticism and critique. And so these are the smartest women I know <laughs> to do that. It's been valuable. Um, I would say a lot of writing groups can get to be a battle of egos and you want to avoid that. Um, I'm lucky enough to have been in a couple of writing groups where people really try to see that you're trying to intensify and potentify, made that word up, <laughs> potent and make potent what is you. And so they don't necessarily try to change you, but make what you're trying to do more intense. And that's very valuable. So Samantha, on top of that, you, I know you worked on your story that you read tonight with Anthony Doerr quite a bit in the workshop, who obviously has done some amazing things as, you know, yeah. Novelist and a short story writer, you know, but what, what's that relationship been like, you know, as you've developed the story in, you know, sort of. Yeah. So Tony Dorr is a is a friend. We served on the board of the cabin together, and he very graciously allowed me to participate in a graduate fiction workshop that he that he did at BSU 
some years back, and it was, you know, for me an extraordinary experience. Um, Tony, in addition to being a mind-blowing writer, is a gifted and generous teacher. And he's, you know, he can be disarmingly charming while he's cutting you off at the knees. <laughs> but, um, he, but no, really, he's, he's, he's quite generous. And just the experience, the workshop experience, I, I um, thought it was great to have that many people. You know, you get critiqued when you write a story. You write three stories over the course of the semester, and everyone, everyone critiques them. And when your story is being workshopped, you have to sit there and say nothing. You say nothing. You can't defend it. You can't, you know. You just have to take it, and um, and that was a great experience for me. And it really, you know, to have that many eyes on my work, and that many different perspectives on my work, sort of made me get out of out of my own head and see it differently. And I think that it just makes the work better. I mean, you you know, Chris, you know. But yeah, but Tony's but Tony's a wonderful guide, and in that, I think he's a kind of a spirit guide. So it's been a very valuable thing. Good. What bus stop was it? Um, it's on Pike. Yeah, I don't remember Pike and what, but Pike. Yeah. The one they told me not to get on. Yes, I do. Would you give something like that away? No, I still do. Yeah, yes, I do. Yeah. Anything else? This has been Campfire Stories, recorded live from the Modern Hotel and produced by Radio Boise. Thanks for listening.